Hi again, and welcome to the Physiology by Physio podcast, which is one of the newest shows from your friends at Inside the Boards. So with this show, we hope to provide you with high-yield physiology and pathophysiology review for both your classes and for your board exams. This episode will have a pretty narrow focus. Uh, We're going to zoom in here on the details of the physiology of the stomach and see how that impacts the digestion and absorption of dietary protein. So you feeling ready to jump into things? Okay, I'm going to have the guys from Physio start us off strong with a discussion of the types of cells in the stomach. Then we'll move on to some of my content from Med School Phys. All right, enjoy. The stomach has six important cells that you need to be familiar with for step one. These include the parietal cells. These are located in the body of the stomach. Also notice that the parietal cells secrete hydrochloric acid, which is responsible for the acidic environment in the stomach and intrinsic factor, which is necessary for the proper absorption of vitamin B12. As you can see, the chief cells are also located in the body of the stomach and secrete pepsinogen. Pepsinogen gets converted into pepsin when it comes in contact with the acidic environment of the stomach. Pepsin is an enzyme that is involved in digesting proteins, which we'll talk about more later. Notice that the mucus cells, the G cells, and the D cells are all located in the antrum of the stomach. The G cell is responsible for producing gastrin. Through a chain of reactions, this eventually stimulates the parietal cell to secrete acid. The mucus cell is responsible for producing mucus, which makes sense, right? And the D cell is responsible for producing somatostatin. And this is a hormone that essentially shuts down the GI tract. Okay, now let's see how the physiology of the stomach plays into protein digestion and absorption. So in protein digestion, similar to carbohydrate digestion, we need to break down proteins into much smaller units, amino acids or di-slash-tripeptide constituents, to facilitate their absorption. Starting with the mouth, the mouth helps to physically break up larger globs of protein and other nutrients in a mixed meal. Then we move to the stomach. What are two important agents in the stomach that help with protein digestion? Well, the two that I would know about are pepsin and stomach acidity. Okay, let's talk about pepsin first. So starting out, pepsinogen is produced by the chief cells, and it's secreted into the lumen of the stomach. Pepsinogen is converted into the active form, pepsin, by low stomach pH and by previously activated pepsin itself. So pepsin starts to enzymatically cleave dietary proteins into smaller peptides. Next up, let's talk about the acidity. So stomach acid is produced by what cells in the lining of the stomach? The parietal cells. And acid helps to unfold and denature proteins which makes it easier to cleave up proteins into smaller parts with enzymes. Acid is also protective against microbes. So what enzyme produces the acid in the stomach? So it's the proton pump, otherwise known as the hydrogen-potassium ATPase. This enzyme is an ATP-dependent antiporter, moving hydrogen out of the lumen against its concentration gradient in exchange for potassium from the lumen, and this is powered by ATP. Because positive charges are exchanged, the electroneutrality of the parietal cell is maintained, 
So this proton pump is ultimately what generates the acidic environment in the stomach lumen. To maintain the pH of the parietal cell, as a hydrogen ion is released into the stomach lumen, bicarb is then removed from the parietal cell and put into the bloodstream. So that maintains the pH of the parietal cell, right? Getting rid of acid and getting rid of a bicarb at the same time. This is why we end up having that alkaline tide after meals, that transient rise in blood pH, because bicarb is released from parietal cells with meals. The bicarb that leaves the parietal cell is then exchanged for a chloride ion going into the cell. Again, this helps to maintain electroneutrality in the parietal cell. Now we have to remember that cells have ions flowing into and out of them all the time, right? And some of these channels are kind of leaky. Well, some chloride actually passes from the parietal cell into the stomach lumen. Hence, we say that the stomach produces hydrochloric acid because it combines with that hydrogen ion pumped out by the proton pump. Okay, so the stomach produces pepsin and acid to help break down protein, but what protects the stomach from harming itself with these products? Well, among other defenses, mucosal cells produce mucus as a physical barrier, and they invest that mucus layer with plenty of bicarb to create this microenvironment, which has a more neutral pH than the very acidic stomach lumen. Can you think of something that enhances the production of both bicarb and mucus in the stomach? Well, it's prostaglandins, specifically prostaglandin E2 and prostaglandin I2, which is also known as prostacyclin. Okay, so with this in mind, what's the risk of taking drugs that inhibit prostaglandin production? Well, with less prostaglandins in the stomach lining, we have more stomach acidity, less bicarb, and less mucus production. And this combination predisposes to the underlying mucosa becoming irritated by stomach acid and thereby predisposing to bleeding and ulceration. Hence, you need to think about your patient's stomach lining before prescribing NSAIDs like ibuprofen, which is also known as Motrin or Advil, or Ketorolac, which is known as Toradol. One alternative you can use if your patient really wants to use an NSAID for their joint pains is to prescribe a COX-2 inhibitor or cyclooxygenase-2 inhibitor uh, like salicoxib, known as Celebrex. These COX-2 inhibitors are targeted agents that don't inhibit the activity of COX-1, which is what produces the prostaglandins in the stomach. Instead, they target COX-2, which, one, helps to treat the joint pains, but it also helps you to get around the stomach issues related to NSAIDs. Anyways, so that's enough of a farm tangent for now. Uh, next up, I'll pass you off to the guys from Physio. They'll start us back up with thinking about some basic questions about the role of the stomach, uh, and then go into the phases of acid secretion. Then they'll give us a few awesome practice questions to think about. Okay, with this in mind, let's discuss the primary functions of the stomach. Okay, the stomach has three primary functions. The first and the only essential function of the stomach is to produce intrinsic factor. The second function of the stomach is to act as a reservoir for food. By acting as a reservoir, the stomach can regulate how frequently boluses of food enter the duodenum. The last function of the stomach is the secretion of acid by parietal cells. For step one, you need to know that acid secretion occurs in three phases. The cephalic phase, the gastric phase, and the intestinal phase. The cephalic phase is mediated by the vagus nerve and is triggered by the taste, sight, smell, and thought of food. When the vagus nerve is stimulated, it releases acetylcholine and gastric-releasing peptide, or GRP. 
Acetylcholine stimulates the M3 receptors on the parietal cells, and GRP stimulates G cells to secrete gastrin. Gastrin then stimulates the CCKB receptor on the parietal cells, and the ECL cells, or the enterochromaffin-like cells. The ECL cells secrete histamine, which can then stimulate the H2 receptor on the parietal cells. All of these transmitters cause stimulation of the GQ and GS secondary messenger pathways, which ultimately causes activation of the hydrogen-potassium pump, resulting in the secretion of acid. For step one, you need to know that cutting the vagus nerve fiber endings near the stomach can reduce acid secretion, which should be clear now after going through the normal physiology. So what I just described was the cephalic phase of acid secretion, and this is all mediated by the vagus nerve. The second phase is called the gastric phase. The gastric phase occurs as a result of food entering the stomach, which causes the release of gastrin. Again, gastrin stimulates the CCKB receptor and the ECL cells. The ECL cells release histamine, which stimulates the H2 receptor and ultimately results in the secretion of acid. Okay, the final phase of acid secretion is called the intestinal phase, which occurs when protein enters the duodenum. Initially, this phase stimulates acid secretion, but the overall effect is to reduce acid secretion. Acid suppression occurs when the ileum and colon release peptide YY. Peptide YY inhibits the ECL cells from releasing histamine, so decreased histamine. If histamine is decreased, then the H2 receptor is not stimulated as much, which results in decreased acid production. So remember, acid secretion occurs in three phases. The cephalic phase, the gastric phase, and the intestinal phase. Okay, with this in mind, let's do a few questions. Which cell is inhibited by omeprazole? PPIs work by blocking the hydrogen-potassium ATPase pump on parietal cells. Okay, let's do another question. How would pernicious anemia alter gastrin levels? We know that pernicious anemia is a result of autoimmune destruction of the parietal cells. This damage results in decreased hydrochloric acid secretion. As the pH rises in the stomach, the G cells detect the decreased acid and begin to release gastrin and attempt to stimulate the parietal cells to secrete more acid. So decrease parietal cells results in decreased acid, which increases the G cells production of gastrin. So how would pernicious anemia alter gastrin levels? They would be increased. Okay, let's do another question. A patient has a gastrectomy due to gastric cancer and the esophagus is directly sutured to the duodenum. The patient is prophylactically given high doses of vitamin B12 to prevent anemia. What other symptom is the patient likely to have? Okay, from the question stem, we know that the patient had a gastrectomy and the patient has been prescribed high doses of vitamin B12 
so we don't have to worry about the patient developing anemia. The question asks what other symptom the patient will likely have. The key to getting this question right is remembering that the stomach acts as a reservoir for food and regulates how frequently boluses of food enter the duodenum. If the patient doesn't have a stomach, then large boluses of food can directly enter the small intestine, resulting in a high osmotic load to the GI tract. The high osmotic load can pull in water, which can cause diarrhea. So increased osmotic load results in increased water in the gastrointestinal lumen, which results in diarrhea. Okay, let's do another question. A four-week-old boy presents with non-bilious projectile vomiting. How will this disorder alter his electrolyte concentration? Hopefully from the question stem you notice that the patient has pyloric stenosis. Pyloric stenosis occurs when the pylorus becomes narrow, which prevents food from moving from the stomach into the duodenum. As food accumulates in the stomach, the child develops projectile vomiting. It's non-bilious because the food hasn't passed into the duodenum, which is where bile enters the GI tract. The excess vomiting results in the loss of stomach acid. Recall that stomach acid is in the form of hydrochloric acid, so HCl. This means the patient will lose hydrogen ions, so decreased hydrogen, resulting in an alkalosis. The patient will also lose chloride, resulting in hypochloremia. So the patient will develop a metabolic alkalosis with hypochloremia. Okay, hey guys, it's Greg again from Inside the Boards, and I'd like to give a quick plug for our sponsor this week, which is Physio. So a couple of years ago, Physio burst onto the scene of medical education with their physiology course, which proved that they kind of know what they're doing as medical educators. And since then, they've just continued to make improvements and produce more valuable content for their subscribers. Not only have they produced physiology content that they fashioned in kind of a similar manner to the Pathoma whiteboard style lectures, but they've also produced a course for biochem and biostats and even more. And they're currently working on a high yield micro course for the boards, which they fashioned after the sketchy style. So I've got to say that I'm really impressed with the work that they're doing at Physio, and I love the idea of having Pathoma-style content, conceptual learning, integrated together with sketchy-style memorization tools. And it's all housed together in one sleek platform on Physio. Oh, and did I also mention that they also produced a textbook that they continually update and you get free with your subscription? So there's no need to furiously write down notes. It's already written down for you in a nice and neat manner, so you can just kind of go with the flow of the videos. Anyways, I'm really excited to be working with the guys from Physio on this collaborative podcast. Now, I want you to stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about a discount code for your Physio subscription that we at Inside the Boards were able to secure for you, the listener. But for now, let's get back to the show. Okay, now that we've seen acid production from one perspective, let's take a look at it from another, slightly different perspective. So in the next section, I'll give you my perspective on acid production, which is kind of a hyper-zoomed-in view related to intracellular signaling that controls acid production by the parietal cells of the stomach. Uh, the reason we're going to go into all of this detail about acid production in the stomach is because it's critical for the digestion of dietary proteins, as well, acid plays an important defensive role for our immunity. 
Also, as physicians, we commonly use drugs to regulate stomach acidity, so we'd better have a good understanding of the underlying physiology before we make any treatment decisions. And with all that detail about the acidity of the stomach, this is a good time to expand on some of the important regulators of stomach acidity. So stimulation of what kind of G proteins on the parietal cell will actually promote the production of stomach acid? Well, the hydrogen potassium ATPase is stimulated by IP3 and calcium and cyclic AMP. Hence, the activation of G sub Q and G sub S coupled receptors will stimulate acid release. Can you think of the hormones or neurotransmitters that actually do this? Well, when acetylcholine and gastrin bind to their receptors, their receptors are linked to a G sub Q protein, which increases IP3 and calcium. And when histamine binds to its receptor, it's linked with a G sub S protein, and that increases cyclic AMP in the cell. And again, both of those mechanisms stimulate the proton pump. All right, based on what we just said about the stimulation of G sub S receptors promoting acid production, how could we then reduce stomach acidity? Well, if we stimulate G sub I coupled receptors, which do the opposite of G sub S receptors by inhibiting the action of adenylate cyclase, we could actually decrease the levels of cyclic AMP and decrease the amount of acid produced. Can you think of any agents that will actually do this? So the two to know about are prostaglandins and somatostatin. Somatostatin is often referred to as somatostopin because it basically stops the release of everything. Um, now let's talk about some stimulators of stomach acidity versus inhibitors of stomach acidity. Um, we already said that acetylcholine, gastrin, and histamine uh, stimulate stomach acidity. So acetylcholine is released by what nerve to do this? It's released by the vagus nerve and this stimulates stomach acidity. And what receptor does acetylcholine bind to in the stomach? Well, it's actually the M3 receptor. And the M3 receptor uses a G sub Q coupled mechanism, which increases IP3 and calcium inside of the parietal cell, stimulating stomach acidity. Okay, so that's acetylcholine. Up next, we have gastrin. So gastrin is produced by what cells in the antrum of the stomach? It's produced by G cells in the antrum of the stomach, and it stimulates stomach acidity. So what receptor does gastrin bind to? Well, this one's kind of an interesting one. It binds to the CCKB receptor, and the CCKB receptor, like the M3 receptor, is G sub Q coupled, and again, that increases IP3 and calcium, which promotes stomach acidity. Some of the regulators of gastrin release include stretch of the stomach, which increases gastrin release. The vagus nerve also increases gastrin release, but it does so indirectly. So the vagus nerve, in addition to releasing acetylcholine, also releases gastrin-releasing peptide, which stimulates gastrin release from the G cells. And the last regulator is an inhibitor of gastrin release. So low stomach pH actually inhibits gastrin release, acting basically like negative feedback on acid production. So in addition to directly promoting acid release, gastrin also indirectly promotes acid release by telling the ECL cells, or the enterochromaffin-like cells, to produce histamine. So let's talk about histamine. Histamine is produced by the enterochromaffin-like cells. Uh, it's also produced by mast cells, and this has a stimulatory effect on acid release. So histamine binds to what receptor on the stomach? 
Well, it's the histamine receptor, but it's specifically the H2 receptor. And the H2 receptor is G sub S coupled. And again, G sub S and G sub Q both stimulate acid release by the parietal cells. Hence, histamine stimulates acid release. All right, so those are the stimulators of acid release by the stomach. Acetylcholine, gastrin, and histamine. Now let's talk about some of the inhibitors of acid production. Earlier, we mentioned that secretin is released by the S cells of the duodenum in response to acid in the duodenum. And we said that secretin promotes the release of bicarb from the pancreas, but it also inhibits the production of gastrin from the G cells. And this will have an effect of reducing acid production. So it's kind of like a double whammy, increased bicarb, decreased acid. Other inhibitors, which we've already mentioned, include somatostatin, which is produced by the D cells, um, also the delta cells in the pancreas, and acid production is also inhibited by prostaglandins. The next inhibitor of gastric acid secretion that I want to mention is GIP. GIP, or gastric inhibitory peptide, uh, also known as glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide, but I'm just going to call it GIP for short, is produced by the duodenal K cells. And when GIP is released by the duodenal K cells, it inhibits acid secretion in a similar manner to secretin by inhibiting gastrin production from the G cells. So both secretin and GIP inhibit gastrin production from the G cells, which reduces acid secretion. In addition to that role, GIP is part of the incretin response, which I'll discuss in a future lecture on GI endocrinology. But basically, the incretins like GIP and GLP enhance insulin release in response to a meal and slow gastric emptying. A great mnemonic to help remember that GIP is released by K cells is by remembering that GIP is part of the incretin response. And if you spell incretin with a K, that helps you remember that GIP is released by the K cells. So to summarize, there's definitely more to this whole topic, but these are the stimulators of gastric acid production that I would make sure to remember. Acetylcholine, gastrin, and histamine. I would also make sure that I knew that prostaglandins and somatostatin stimulate G sub I to inhibit acid production, while GIP and secretin inhibit gastrin production, thereby inhibiting acid production. Okay, so we started that long tangent about acid production because we were talking about protein digestion, right? Which partly depends on stomach acidity. Although protein digestion gets started in the stomach, the brunt of the work of digestion and all of the absorption actually occurs in the small intestine. So most protein digestion is achieved by pancreatic enzymes like trypsin, which are initially released as zymogens like trypsinogen. Remember that trypsinogen is converted to its active form, trypsin, by the enzyme, enteropeptidase, which is also known as enterokinase. Uh, enteropeptidase is located on the membrane of duodenal cells, and it stands ready to activate trypsinogen into trypsin. Trypsin can then activate zymogens like chymotrypsinogen or other molecules of trypsinogen, and when active, chymotrypsin and trypsin help to cleave dietary proteins into smaller peptides. And as these smaller peptides approach the membranes of the microvilli lining the small intestine, they'll end up encountering these brush border enzymes that we've talked about. Can you think of any of the important brush border peptidases? Well, one to know about would be carboxypeptidase. Another one that I would know about is dipeptidase. And carboxypeptidase and dipeptidase further cleave uh, proteins into di-slash-tripeptides and amino acids, 
which are then ready to be absorbed. So the next question is, how are we going to absorb them? Similar to glucose, amino acids can be co-transported with sodium uh, to enter into the enterocyte, and di- and tripeptides can be co-transported with hydrogen ions to enter into the enterocyte. Do you remember the enzyme that moves di- and tripeptides into the enterocyte? Well, it's called PEPT1, and I would definitely know that one. Enterocytes can also absorb larger proteins uh, via transcytosis. So when these amino acids, uh, di- and tripeptides, and larger proteins enter into the enterocyte, the peptides are going to be broken down and converted into amino acids, and then all these amino acids uh, can then pass into the blood by facilitated diffusion. Okay, so that's basically the important stuff to know about protein digestion and absorption. Uh, Let's summarize. So mechanical digestion starts in the mouth, then in the stomach, pepsin and acid start chemical digestion, and in the small intestine, pancreatic enzymes like trypsin break proteins down into smaller pieces, and finally the brush border enzymes make single amino acids and di tripeptides, which can then be absorbed. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. Okay, guys, so that's it for the content of this episode. Uh, I know it was a pretty narrow topic, but it'll be helpful to know when taking care of your future patients. So as usual, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something, and I'll see you guys next time. 